And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came, uh, when, the, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with other tongues and prophesied. Now, the men were about 12 in all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage, and I know I pray it in leading this church over and over again, but we marvel at the diversity of the subject matter that is in your Bible, and we long to have every uh, major area of our life and every nook and cranny in our life to be conformed into the image of your word and thus into the image of your Son. We pray that you would bless your word this morning as we study it. We pray that you would use it to deepen our understanding of you and as a result, a deepening of our relationship with you. We pray as well that you would continue to lead us into the fullness of the life that is described in your book that we might claim and experience every single thing that has been purchased for us by Jesus in the death upon his cross and through his burial and his resurrection. And we ask these things of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In our narrative, in this point in the book of Acts, we are in what is uh, famously known as the third, uh, third uh, missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit's description of Paul's uh, third missionary journey begins a little bit uh, later in chapter 18 and verse 23, and then the Holy Spirit uh, takes a pause to describe this man by the name of Apollos to us, and then now he begins in earnest his description of Paul's third uh, missionary uh, journey. And it records for us here his arrival in the city of Ephesus, where he is going to spend three years. That's an uh, enormous block, considering he came to know the Lord kind of a little bit later in life. It wasn't in his youth. He would die a martyr's death. And so that time between his salvation, preparation for service, and then his death was kind of a compact period. Uh, he didn't live out, you know, into his 80s or something like that, or 70s. And so to spend, for the Holy Spirit to have him spend three years of those precious years in one city uh, was uh, tremendous. And the result of it was a tremendous church, very influential church, was established there in the city of uh, Ephesus. It was the longest block of time, three years, that Paul would spend in any city establishing it. Uh, only uh, his time in Corinth at a year and a half even remotely rivaled it. At the end of his second missionary journey, on his way home uh, to Antioch in Syria, he stopped in Ephesus 
and uh, he spent some time there preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah in the synagogue there. The Jews uh, were initially very, very receptive to his message, asked that he would stay on for a longer period of time. He was unable to do it in the light of other plans uh, that he had, and so he promised that he would return to them in the future, God willing. And about a year later now, uh, God was willing, and so Paul kept his promise. Now, before his arrival in Ephesus, Apollos, we're told in verse 1, had apparently departed the city of Ephesus, uh, having been discipled by uh, Priscilla, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and now made his way to the city of Corinth. Corinth had been, a church had been established there by Paul on his second missionary journey. And so Apollos comes in now to strengthen the brethren in uh, that uh, church that Paul had established. And all of this helps us make sense of Paul's comment to the church in Corinth in his first letter to them, where he declared, I planted. He established the church, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, upon arriving in Ephesus, we're told in verse 1 that he found some disciples there, and we're told further that his contact or his interaction with them produced an immediate question in his mind, which he then posed to them, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, clearly, in his initial reaction with them, he noticed something about their lives that made it clear to him that they were lacking something in terms of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as Christians. Now, it's important to understand concerning this passage, and it may not be important to everyone in the room, but it will be very important to many who are in the room for understanding it. It's very important to understand concerning these seven verses that how it ends up being interpreted by Bible students and by Christians hinges very much on one's personal view of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian at the moment of their conversion, at the moment of their salvation. For example, those who teach that a Christian always, emphasis on always, those who teach that a Christian always receives the fullness of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, that there can be no subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit nothing else that the Holy Spirit might further add to our lives as Christians later, for instance, in the form of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, they must teach concerning this passage that these 12 men were men who thought they were Christians when in fact they were not, because clearly the Holy Spirit comes upon them in verse 6. There are others, including myself, who believe that the Bible teaches that a Christian can, emphasis on can. We believe that the Bible teaches that a Christian can, depending on their individual circumstances, experience a second experience with the Holy Spirit, what Jesus called the baptism with the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8. And in receiving this baptism with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, it is to receive dunamis, it is to receive dynamic, it is to receive power for the purpose of allowing us to live the Christian life and become witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It is the power to live the Christian life that God intends each of us to live, whether in Jerusalem, at home, or on the other side of the world, and every place uh, in between. Now, uh, we, those of us who hold that view, then we are free to recognize what I think the passage plainly communicates to us that these men were already Christians. 
though they were woefully ignorant in their understanding of the Holy Spirit, and thus missing in their lives the fullness of the dunamis, the dynamic, the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Again, let me refresh your memory concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, promised to all Christians, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, in support of this position, this particular view, the one that I hold, I want you to please notice that in verse 1, they're plainly called disciples by the Holy Spirit. Notice further that when Paul poses his question to them in verse uh, 2, that he acknowledges that they had believed. He declares to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the Greek word that is used for believe there in verse 2 in Paul's question is the exact same word that is used in John 3.16 concerning uh, belief, the same Greek word uh, that describes Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus to describe what is required for salvation. Again, Jesus declaring there, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him, what will be the result of it? They shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul is acknowledging the fact that these disciples have believed. It's really inconceivable to me that the Apostle Paul would pose the question, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed to a non-Christian? And the reason I don't think he would ever do that is for the simple reason that a non-Christian hasn't yet believed in Jesus, and anyone who hasn't believed in Jesus cannot have received the Holy Spirit into their lives. And without the Holy Spirit in their lives, we cannot, they could, and nobody can, be a Christian. And the Apostle Paul knew this better than anyone because he wrote in his epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, but you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then here it is. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now, the key to me, and, and again, I'm building to an application in the passage, but I'll lose 40% of the room if I don't build that foundation there. So be patient with me. It's worth, uh, it's worth the effort to... Um, uh, to go deeper into the passage. To me, the key to understanding this important passage is to realize that the Bible uses three different Greek prepositions to describe the relationship that every single Christian is intended to have with the Holy Spirit. The first Greek preposition is the Greek word para. We get our word parallel from it. It means with, or it means alongside. Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 14, verse 16, when he declared concerning the Spirit, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is everywhere all at the same uh, time. It's called omnipresence. And thus, He is always present with us as Christians. The second Greek preposition that is used to describe a Christian's relationship with the Holy Spirit is the Greek word in, E-N, and it's the equivalent of our English word, I-N, or in. And thus, this occurs at the time that we're born again. We put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and then God's Holy Spirit comes into our life at our invitation. Again, Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians concerning this, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And that's the word that he's using. Again, from Romans chapter 8, verse 9. 
but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit in us, or else we can't be Christians. He is the one that produces the born again, the spiritual birth within our lives. It is this inexperience that makes us Christians. The third Greek preposition is the word epi, and it is in the Greek it is epi, and it is the equivalent of our English word upon, which Jesus used to describe the baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read that passage to you again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He is using that third Greek preposition there. And this is something subsequent to salvation to his audience, who happened to be the apostles at this moment. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it is this appee relationship or experience with the Holy Spirit that, again, provides us with the power that we need to live a life like Christ in any environment we find ourselves, no matter what neighborhood or city or apartment complex or school or work environment or athletic team that we find ourselves on. It's the power to live a life like Christ anywhere we find ourselves in the world and in any environment, both physical, moral, spiritual, and so forth. And what these Christians lacked was this particular experience with the Holy Spirit. They did not lack the Holy Spirit with them. They did not lack the Holy Spirit being in them. But what they lacked was this dynamic empowering of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life at its fullest, this upon, this appee experience that Jesus described. Well, someone might ask, as you're listening to me, and it would be a very, very good question. How in the world can you state that as dogmatically as you're doing? And I do so because the Holy Spirit makes it clear for us in the passage. Because notice which of the Greek prepositions he uses in verse 6 to describe addressing the deficiency in their life when Paul lays hands on them, he uses the word upon. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That is a baptism with the Holy Spirit word that is, is used there in the dynamic of what now happens with these believers. Now, that the Bible teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit can occur in a Christian's life sometime after their conversion, after their inexperience, after the Holy Spirit has come into their lives uh, and, and, and being saved, to me is indisputable. Some of you may wonder why in the world am I, you know, laboring this point this morning. It's because there is a huge block. I love them. I have fellowship with them. I respect them as Christians. But there's a huge block of, of Christians in the world today who believe that every single dynamic of the Holy Spirit is received at salvation. There cannot be any further experience with the Holy Spirit, certainly no baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what people are taught. And so this can be brand new to a person. I'm deconstructing uh, some people's understanding of the Holy Spirit right now in this room. So it's important to not just say, some different things that I believe but not allow them to understand why biblically I believe these things. And what we believe on this issue will determine very significantly the quality of Christian life that each of us enjoys. And so the, that the Bible, again, uh, clearly teaches that the baptism with the Holy Spirit can occur in a Christian's life sometime after their conversion, after their 
in experience, their salvation experience, to me is indisputable. For example, we think about the apostles themselves. We remember that Jesus himself appeared to them on the night of his resurrection, and there they are huddled up and hidden away uh, in fear in an upper room somewhere in the city uh, of Jerusalem and all of its described force there in John chapter 20. And Jesus then breathed upon them, and he declared to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes into their life now because Jesus is now interacting with them immediately after his death, his burial, and his uh, resurrection. The Holy Spirit was already para with them, but then again because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection just recently accomplished that very day, he now came into their lives. But it would be for them some 49 days later that they would receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the upon of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. I think we can think as well of those Samaritan believers that we examined when we were in Acts chapter 8, where Philip leaves, this deacon leaves Jerusalem. He goes into a surrounding area of Israel known as Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel uh, to the people there. And we're told that the people of the city, they received the gospel, they believed the gospel that Philip preached, and then further that Philip then proceeded to baptize them. They are clearly Christians. There is no way Philip would have baptized them if they hadn't been Christians. And yet, back in Jerusalem, when word gets back to the apostles that this great work of the Holy Spirit is going on out in Samaria, Samaria at the hands of a mere deacon, they send out two apostles from Jerusalem to Samaria then to take a look at what it is that's going on there. And it was only when the apostles arrived some time later uh, that they then prayed for these Samaritan believers. They laid hands upon them in order to then receive this epi, this baptism with the Holy Spirit, for we're told in that very passage, for as yet he had not fallen upon them. The Holy Spirit was with them, and the Holy Spirit was in them, but they hadn't yet received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I think of the Apostle Paul himself concerning this. Remember when he was saved in that very dramatic fashion on the road to Damascus, and the Lord kind of knocks him off of uh, his high horse, and uh, Paul would describe uh, multiple times in the remainder of the book of Acts, he would give his testimony of his salvation experience, and he would declare the fact that he was saved when he had that encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road. He would declare it for the rest of his life. Well, following that experience, he is then led blind into the city of Damascus. And then three days later, when a Christian by the name of Ananias was sent by God to then lay hands on uh, Paul and to pray for him, Paul, Ananias, when he comes into the room, he refers to Paul as Brother Saul. He recognizes that he's already saved on the road to Damascus, and yet it was days after even Paul's conversion that Paul was ultimately baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then now you have these 12, and you notice in verse 6 that when Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit was, was now given the opportunity for everyone to see, given the opportunity to address whatever lack was in their life that had arrested the Apostle Paul's attention, that he does not then come into their lives from which we would then conclude that they were not saved to begin with, as some contend. But rather, he comes upon them, you notice, a P. He baptizes them with the Holy Spirit. And so clearly their lack had nothing to do with the fact that they weren't saved, but rather that they lacked the power of the baptism with the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it seems to me 
that we have an example of something that is very, very uh, instructive here that applies to only God knows how many people in this room and how many Christians in the whole wide world, an example of Christians who being uninstructed or poorly instructed concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in their Christian lives are trying to live the Christian life without this dynamic of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And this kind of thing is so widespread within Christianity, and, and, and the reason for it is because the Holy Spirit remains the very neglected person within the Godhead. Most of us as Christians are uh, very uh, uh, well instructed concerning God the Father, wonderful. Instructed deeply concerning uh, God the Son, wonderful, necessary. Uh, but when it comes to uh, Christians, by and large, understanding something about the Holy Spirit, it's almost like you have to walk off of a cliff to come down to the level of the understanding of that member of the Godhead concerning, to, concerning the average Christian's understanding of the Father and the Son. Now, I want to take a moment, because it's significant here in verses 2 and 3, to examine Paul's questions uh, to them. You notice in verse 2, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer to the first question is essentially, it's a confession that though Christians, they were totally ignorant concerning the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. This then prompted a second question from the Apostle Paul uh, to them in verse 3. Into what then were you baptized? And the reason that Paul raises that question at this point is that he's trying to understand their lack of exposure to the person of the Holy Spirit. Because if they had been baptized as Jesus commanded his disciples to be baptized, then they would have at least heard of the Holy Spirit at the moment of their baptism. Because Jesus taught in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And Paul's question is, if they'd been baptized as Christians, hadn't this been done, even this limited exposure uh, to the person of the Holy Spirit? And their response is that they declared that they had never been baptized since becoming Christians. They'd only been baptized into John the Baptist's baptism, which had been done by John and his disciples as an expression of repentance from sin in order to be watching and waiting for the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. But Christian baptism looks back to the finished work of Jesus upon the cross and upon his resurrection. So where there they stand before the Apostle Paul, completely ignorant as Christians concerning water baptism as well as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so then what does Paul do? He proceeds now to correct these two great areas of ignorance in their life. First, by water baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And then second, by laying hands on them that they might receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the upon dynamic of the Christian life. Now, I lay say all of that to lay a foundation, to now apply it to our own individual lives as we sit here uh, this morning. 
And so the passage then raises the question concerning what particular lack did the Apostle Paul see in the lives of these men when he first had contact with them that provoked first within his mind and then a question that he articulated, the question to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What was it? And the fascinating thing to me about the passage is it doesn't tell us. We only know that from Paul's perspective, something important was clearly missing from their Christian lives, something that evidenced an an absence of the Holy Spirit's power in their lives. And I think the reason that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us that kind of detail, what is it that he spotted in particular related to, to their lives, is that if we were told then in the passage, then we would narrow that evidence for an absence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives down to one thing, when in fact it can be evidenced by many things. And so we ask ourselves, what might be some of the evidences that indicate that a Christian lacks the upon experience of the Holy Spirit? They lack the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things surely, undeniably, would be a lack of spiritual power in my life as a Christian because Jesus described the baptism with the Holy Spirit as you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it is the kind of Christian who loves the Lord, who wants to serve the Lord, who wants to obey the Lord, but they have this sinking sense within their life that I feel that I am living my Christian life in my own strength. A noticeable sense of the lack of spiritual power in my life is an indication that I lack this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Second, if my Christian life is characterized by continual sin and defeat in the face of temptation, if I am a Christian that in virtually every temptation that I face is one in which I, you know, am like a puppy, I just roll over in the face of the devil and, and uh, allow him to rub my tummy and do whatever he wants uh, uh, to me. But there is, there is no, uh, I'm living a life that is dominated uh, by continual lifestyle sin. That is a clear evidence uh, that someone, uh, that person is desperately in need of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because again, it is power, but it is the power to live a life like Jesus Christ to be victorious in the face of temptation as he was. I tell our leaders, our pastors and our senior leadership in the church and also uh, those that pray with us after the services up in front and, and all, and I tell people, when you pray with somebody and their life is characterized by life dominating sin. Uh, they are, they, they, this is what characterizes their Christian life, then ask them if they've ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if they haven't been baptized with the Spirit, then pray for them to do so. And then if they have, then to pray with them to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. A third indication of this uh, this need for the baptism with the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life would be characterized, uh, 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 a Christian's life that is characterized by no desire for holiness, no desire for godly living. Uh, this Christian li- watches everything that the world watches on television, at the movies, listens to everything that the world listens to in terms of, uh, of uh, entertainment, 
engages in all of the sin that everybody else in the world, or at least if not there, in the 80 percentile of what uh, the sins that every unsaved person is, uh, you know, able to, uh, to do by virtue of being the masters of their uh, own soul. And so this absence of a concern to live a holy life, a desire to live a godly life is a clear indication of a lack concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the name of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And when he comes into our lives and upon our lives, he brings a fullness of desire to then live a holy life and to give us the power to do so. In the same vein, there is a need for the baptism of the Holy Spirit when there's no deep conviction of sin when I do wrong. And I find that uh, that conviction has been lost and now I'm able to do things as a Christian that once brought conviction and there's no longer conviction uh, at all, a need for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another indication is if I possess no real love for the Word of God or no real hunger for the Word of God. The Word of God is dead to me. Uh, I'm disinterested in it. In a sermon, the only time I wake up is when they tell stories about pets uh, or something like that. Then I'm all excited and revved up until he starts talking about doctrine again, and then I'm lost. But in all seriousness, if the Word of God is dead uh, to the person, it bores that person, has no life for them. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. He is excited about the Bible, and he is eager to bring that excitement for the Word of God into our lives as, all, as well. Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, he will come uh, to teach us all things. Another mark of a Christian life that is in desperate need of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is if there's no desire to pray or there is no desire to worship God. Uh, there are plenty of Christians who have virtually no worship experience in their life between them and uh, Christians, and there's something wrong with that, and it's important to recognize that. A lack of a worship experience, a need to ascribe worth to God, to praise Him, to magnify Him, to glorify Him in the way that we have uh, just done. The absence of that is the mark of an incomplete uh, Christian. Jesus declared concerning the Holy Spirit, John 16, 14, He will glorify me. And that's exactly what worship is. Another mark of a Christian in need of the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a lukewarmness in my relationship with God. My relationship with God is the relationship with God that gets, I get reminded of every Sunday morning when my wife tells me that I've got to go to church with her. Uh, or the relationship with God is cold or it's dead or it's distant or it's lukewarm when the baptism of the Holy Spirit will produce in us a love for God that will produce a relationship with Him that is living, it is vibrant, it is needed, it is uh, current. Jesus taught concerning the Holy Spirit that He will testify of me. He will always be working to deepen our relationship with the Lord. Another mark is if I'm living a loveless Christian life where everybody bugs me. There's no difference between before when I was a Christian and now I am a Christian. I just really don't like people. I'm impatient with, with people. Or I live a terminally selfish life. Every relationship in my life is one in, uh, that is completely one-sided toward me. I do all of the taking. I do all of the receiving. They do all of the giving. There's not one relationship in my life that requires any sacrifice on my part. And if one ever does rise up to demand more of me than what I give into it, then I just get rid of that person. And it's a loveless life. 
And the Bible teaches that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And where there's that absence of love, there's a need for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, as well as if there's an absence of joy. Again, joy is a fruit of the Holy uh, uh, Spirit uh, within our lives. And sometimes I can settle in as a Christian into a joyless life. That's just who I am. And, and, and that's just the way the world is all around me and all the people around me and all. Who could have joy in the midst of this? The Holy Spirit brings a joy into our lives that is independent of our circumstances and independent of our own selfishness and our, and our own limitations. And so if a, a joyless life is a, 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 a Christian life that no Christian is intended to live, and then, if I am living a Christian life that is serviceless, uh, there's no sense in my heart of concern for God's call upon my life, no desire to learn what His call is upon my life. I have no concern to discover the spiritual gift that He has given to me as He's given to every uh, single uh, Christian for the benefit of others and for the building up of the body of Christ. There's no exercising of those gifts uh, or that calling. There's no spiritual outflow from my life that then refreshes other people, builds them up in their relationship with the Lord. A serviceless Christianity is, is a Christianity that is completely unlike Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is conforming us here and giving us the power to live a life like Christ, there's going to be Christian service because he said he did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. And I think it's possible. We could go on, I suppose. But I think it is important and helpful uh, to ask ourselves this morning, if the Apostle Paul were to meet me this morning, the fellowship hall after service, and chatted with me for a while, would he notice an incompleteness in my Christian life and then pose this very question to me, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And I love to think about that. I love to allow that to search my life, especially from someone like the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit who was in the Apostle Paul. One of the dangers that we run into is that, is that we express our Christianity within a particular context. And for us, we express our Christianity in the context of an American Christianity. And an American Christianity always has to be constantly be put to the test of whether that is actually a biblical Christianity. And so if it isn't a biblical Christianity, then we can find ourselves being dumbed down into believing that we are living a full dynamic Christian life that doesn't even remotely resemble the one that is described in Scripture. I don't say that any of us in this room are, but the possibility is great. And that's the importance of coming to the Word of God on a regular basis and then allowing mirror, mirror on the wall. The Scripture is referred to as a mirror. Now speak honestly to me about who I am and the Christianity that I am living and is it the fullness of what was purchased for me by Christ. And I'll tell you, I commend the Apostle Paul from a distance of 2,000 years for being willing to look at these 12 disciples and not shrug his shoulders, zip his lip, and walk in another direction, but to confront them related to a lack within their life, not in order to merely confront them or to expose them or to make them feel uh, silly about the Christian life they've been living thus far, but in order to bring them into the fullness 
that the Apostle Paul was living and that he desired every single other Christian to experience as well. And by the way, I know all about Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 7. I know all about it doctrinally. I know all about it experientially and personally. As a youth, I was exposed to some very wonderful things and people that the church my mother used to take us to. I'll be forever indebted to that church and to those people. And in that little church, I learned a great deal, much more than I listened to and absorbed. But I learned a great deal about God the Father and a great respect for Him. And I learned a great deal about God the Son, Jesus, and developed a deep respect uh, for Him. But there was definitely a very limited exposure to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit there. And thus, my impression going into my adult life concerning Christianity was that you put your faith in Jesus for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins, and then you proceeded to roll up your sleeves and now obey all of those commandments that are in the Bible uh, based upon your own strength and your own determination. And I thought that any failure on my part concerning uh, living the Christian life was because of some lack on my part in terms of effort or in terms of determination. And I knew nothing about God providing the power by the Holy Spirit to live this Christian life. And as a result, I found myself trapped, imprisoned, in Romans chapter 7, and living a Romans chapter 7 Christian life, a life that is far short of Romans chapter 8 that is filled with the things of the Spirit. Romans chapter 7 Christianity is described, let me read the number of verses that perfectly encapsulated my experience before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For we know that the law is spiritual, I have no problem with the law of God. I want to obey it. I want to live it. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. And that may characterize what you feel about your Christian life this morning. It's a Romans 7 Christianity. I know all about it. Later in the book of uh, chapter 7, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to live this Christian life. I want a victorious Christian life. And then here's the key. Paul writes, but how? How to perform it? What is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. He's talking about a Christian experience here. Then later in Romans, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. I'm captive to it, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that is a miserable Christian life. And many people live in that very place It is the idea 
that the Holy Spirit is with me and he is in me. But now I am to keep all of the commandments and the volume of the book in my own power rather than in the power that comes only by the Holy Spirit and through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that Christianity is a supernatural life. It is to be supernatural. It is supernatural. And because it is, it requires the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to live it. Living the Christian life isn't just hard without the Holy Spirit. It is impossible without the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's why Romans 8 then goes on and delivers the Christian who was caught in Romans chapter 7 and brings him into chapter 8 to speak extensively in that chapter of the Holy Spirit uh, to those who were caught in the frustration of Romans chapter 7. And the very chapter 8 begins with, for the law of the Spirit, verse 2, of the life uh, in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And then at the age of 25, I walked into a Calvary chapel in Napa, and what I heard was the Holy Spirit this, and the Holy Spirit that, and the Holy Spirit ever, and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, all the God the Father, all the God the Son, but this was a remarkable exposure to the Holy Spirit. And I proceeded to study the scriptures concerning this. I recognized immediately this is an enormous lack within my Christian life. And I became baptized then with the Holy Spirit long after my particular conversion experience. I definitely believe that many people get everything from the Holy Spirit, the in, the with, the upon, at the moment of conversion. I don't want anyone in this room to doubt that if that happened in your life, but for some... For these twelve, for the apostles, for the Samaritans, for Paul, for myself, it happened later. And sometimes it's just because of an ignorance concerning the Holy Spirit, or sometimes it's just the way that God planned to do it. And when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, it didn't make me perfect, but it brought a new power into my life and a new joy into my life and a new hunger for God's Word, and a new hunger for holy uh, living. And spiritually speaking, all of the blues got bluer and the greens got greener. Everything opened up in technicolor concerning the Christian life. It's interesting. It was said of Calvary Chapel back in, in those days that uh, when... Uh, the, the people who were, whose lives were being changed and were kind of flocking to Calvary chapels at that time, number one were people who were just simply being saved upon hearing the gospel. But the other group that ended up becoming the dominant population within Calvary chapels were people from Baptist church or dispensationalist church who did not believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the fullness of the Holy Spirit or churches that believed certain things related to that, but they neglected it. And then also Catholics. And what happened is, is that people came in from these environments, just like I did, into a Calvary chapel, and now exposed to this wonderful new thing called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and then to the Holy Spirit in a powerful way, uh, personally as well. And so the good news for us this morning is that if you know in the privacy of your own heart and your own Christian life, and I would just beg any of us, if we're living so far below the Christian life and this is a thing where it's like you got defensive anywhere in the course of this whole thing and you're going to leave determined here to be as unholy as you've ever been as a Christian and so forth and, and, uh, and all don't let that happen uh, in, in your life. 
or the Word of God isn't a living book to you, and, and so forth. If you see in any sense an incompleteness in your life that Paul would readily spot in you in half an hour of conversation with you as he did within these uh, disciples, that incompleteness can be taken care of completely this morning with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus declared that if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Of course not. If he asks for him for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, as a father, being comparatively to our heavenly father, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, to ask this morning, Lord, I need this dynamic of your Holy Spirit within my life, and it is received uh, for the asking. And as surely as God promised salvation in his word to the person who receives and believes in the Lord, so too when he makes this promise, we will receive it as we ask in earnest for it. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this victorious Christian life, it all starts for you with salvation. And when you become saved and put your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you now become his son, become his daughter, now you see the fullness of the Holy Spirit that's available to you as well. You may sit in this room this morning and say, I tried it as a kid. I tried it as a kid was dead to me, up one side and down the other. I tried to pick up Gideon Bibles in hotel rooms. It means nothing to me. And your idea concerning Christianity is that somehow it is God saving you and then you now living this life in your own strength, in your own determination, and you look at it and say, I've got enough laws to keep from the federal government, the state government, and the local government, and at work in the school that I'm keeping in, I'm not interested in thousands more being laid upon me that I now have to keep in my own strength. as nothing like what Christianity is. God will give us a desire by His Spirit to obey those commandments which are life-giving and then give us the power uh, to obey those commandments. And if you're not saved this morning, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. I'm going to pray with you right now for a moment. I don't want you to stand. It'll kind of freak you out. We're breaking the tradition, aren't we? But I want to pray. Father, I have tried the best that I know how with your Holy Spirit to lay out not only the understanding of this passage, but, Lord, in a way that it's allowed to search our lives as Christians and to make clear to us whether we are living a Christianity in its fullness or whether we are living an incomplete Christianity because we are an incomplete Christian without the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I know, Lord, you're the one who is able to confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders. And I ask that you would do that this morning in every single heart here today, everyone who is listening anywhere, Lord, concerning this necessary part of the Christian life. And as we just continue in an attitude of prayer, if you sit here this morning and you say yes, Whatever your story is, whatever your background, whatever is between you and God, but you look and say, I desperately need, or maybe not even desperately need, you simply recognize your need for the baptism with the Holy Spirit and that it's received simply by asking. I'd like to pray for you this morning, and I just ask that you would simply raise your hand where it is that you're seated as just a way of saying, yes, Lord, I want that from you today. Just raise your hand if you'd like to receive that baptism 
with the Holy Spirit this morning, and I'll pray with you and for you. Just you and God. It's just you and God. Just you and God. Just you and God. Lord, I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here this morning as they've raised their hand to you and a longing for the reality of what they've heard about this morning and what they read about in the book of Acts to become a reality in their Christian life as well. And in their asking for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we as a church family, we agree together right now and ask that you would baptize them now in your Holy Spirit, giving them now the power to live the life like Jesus in whatever environment you have them in or you will ever place them in, in the broadness of the face of planet Earth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's stand together. Good for you, those of you who did that. God is going to meet you. I'm excited for you. I know what a difference it was. It was like going from black and white to color TV, and the color TVs weren't even that good back in those days. And if you need prayer in any way related to what you're stepping out into, any further questions you might have, we're here to answer those questions and available to you for that. Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying the book of Jeremiah on Sunday evening. We'll do that again tonight at 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. Mike, would you close us up?